Hello and welcome to Avi's Conversational Corner, a podcast on history, culture, and politics in a broad perspective. I am your host, Avi Wolf. You can find this and other episodes of Avi's Conversational Corner on Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, and Stitcher. And you can help support the podcast through Patreon. It was a time of rapid, terrifying, and exhilarating change. A time of scientific breakthroughs, mass politics, endless scandals, and efforts at reform. A time when new groups of Americans fought for and sometimes won their right to participate fully in American life, while others did their best to try and keep America as it was, or as they imagined it to be. With few heroes, many villains, great geniuses, and piercing questions, many of which still trouble us today. Welcome to Stumbling Colossus, a regular part of Avi's Conversational Corner, covering the gilded and progressive ages of the United States, from the end of the Civil War to the end of the First World War. This episode's topic, Horatio Alger's Gilded Virtue. His name has become so synonymous with the American ethos of self-made men that, like Frankenstein's monster, Horatio Alger is seen as the image of individual success rather than its promoter. But the world of Horatio Alger was more complex, nuanced, and complicated than this simple image. His was a world where old rural communities were giving way to the mass man of the city, with many a young man seeking his fortune in places seen as dens of sin and danger. How did Alger think they could cope? What virtues were needed in this new urbanizing republic in his view? And how did his work compare with the virtue ethic of his past and the self-improvement literature of the future? With me to discuss these questions and more is Professor Emeritus Carol Nakanoff of Swarthmore College. Carol, welcome. Good morning, Avi, and thank you very much for inviting me. Pleasure is all mine. So let me start with, uh, I guess, a basic introductory question. Uh, who was Horatio Alger and how did he become to, how did he come to become such a household name in American life, both in his time and afterward? Sure. Um, well, Horatio Alger um, was born in 1832 uh, in the, around Boston, um, South Natick. Um, actually, Marlboro South Natick was, was his stomping grounds. Um, and he was, like many um, young men of his day, uh, went to Harvard College. Um, he uh, was not a wealthy uh, student. His father was a minister and not a particularly uh, successful man economically. So uh, the president of Harvard uh, had a fund to give one poor student a winter coat. And Alger was the recipient of that winter coat. And the only condition was that when that person was later able, uh, they were supposed to pay it back to another student. Um, he died in 1899, so he didn't live to see the uh, new century. But uh, Alger was trained in the classics, uh, and uh, he uh, decided uh, he wanted to go to divinity school uh, and did that after uh, a few, few years after he graduated from college. Um, he took a position in Brewster, Mass, uh, as a, a Unitarian minister, but that didn't last long, and we can talk about that later. Um, and he moved to New York uh, in order to try to make a living by writing. 
uh, and he was writing, he wanted to write adult fiction, but he was not very good at it. Um, he wrote a book of poetry. He wrote a couple of uh, adult novels, um, but he was more successful at writing stories for um, young boys. Um, there were a couple of stories for girls. And um, he was always having to ask his publisher for money. So he was not making a lot of money, although Ragged Dick sold uh, a, a lot of copies. Um, he, um, uh, his name, as you said, became synonymous with this kind of self-help um, uh, narrative in American politics, uh, pulling yourself up by your bootstraps, um, keeping a cheerful disposition, even if things were looking uh, grim. Um, and um, uh, so that's basically who he was. Uh, he was best known for the stories and novels he wrote in the uh, 1860s and early 1870s. And later, there was another boost in sales when some of his novels were um, uh, put out in uh, rep cheap reprint editions that were also often abridged um, after his death. Um, but by about the 1920-ish, uh, I would say his popularity was clearly fading. Okay. So... Um... He writes these books, he becomes popular, uh, and I'm learning more and more about how kids would often uh, read his uh, books in libraries and whatnot. Uh, you make a point in your very excellent book, uh, The Fictional Republic, that Alger disagreed with many of the moral and moralizing uh, thinkers and writers of his day, especially on the religious side who were mostly penning jeremiads about how the decline of small town America in favor of the big city was something that was only to be bemoaned and something that would only lead to lead to decline uh, and moral degradation. You argue that while he did not deny that there were problems and there were dangers and there were temptations in the city, that there were, was nevertheless also virtue in the city as well. Could you elaborate on that? Sure. Um, well, he thought, he especially thought the Rollo books by uh, Jacob Abbott, um, which had some travel component, but the um, mentor was always lecturing poor little Rollo about how to behave, and um, uh, they were very moralistic. He thought those were deadly. And, um, you know, I don't know to what extent his own experience uh, having left the ministry, uh, colored his view about the, um, value of, uh, teaching morals through religion, but he did think, and many of the Unitarian, um, Unitarians of the 1840s and, and 50s thought that, um, religion was failing to reach the young, uh, and even Henry Ward Beecher, uh, was known for telling stories from the pulpit as a way to engage uh, a new generation. And he wrote a novel called Norwood, uh, that is, he, Beecher, did, uh, which was quite successful for the day, although I've read it and I don't find it particularly exciting. Um, so Alger thought that the young craved excitement naturally and that the way to reach them was not by sermonizing. 
um, he did think that um, um, uh, some of his uh, some of his heroes, including Ragged Dick, uh, were introduced to Sunday school as a, a way of um, you know sort of learning how to be good. But most of his uh, heroes did not were not churched. Um, one little boy uh, falls asleep in the church uh, during a sermon, which was t- we we heard was boring, and that the fact that he fell asleep became a way that he uh, was noticed uh, as a as a poor boy who had nowhere to really go, and that began his uh, good luck, as it turned out. Um, but I think Alger was trying to. Um, uh, teach a certain kind of morality and character building through different ways that didn't have to be Bible reading and didn't have to be going to church. Okay. Um, So what exactly were those moral ways? How could uh, a kid who was poor or down on his luck or coming from a poor background and struggling in the city, how could they, according to the Alger stories, uh, become virtuous and thus deserve success? Okay. Um, well, the most important thing um, is to guard your character. Uh, as I say in the book, character is capital. In fact, uh, it's like gold. Its value um, doesn't fluctuate like paper money. Um and uh, so Alger felt that it was character that caused people to uh, be noticed um, and, and to gain the, the, the attention of someone who could help the character. Now, another that meant keeping away from um, harmful moral influences, which included the factory. Um, Alger felt that that was not a good place uh, to be able to uh, be noticed because of your character and that there were also um, people around you who might um, be corrupted. Um, so one of the things that uh, Alger was concerned about was in an era of rising immigration and um, uh, class differentiation, uh, it was too easy to fall into bad habits some bad habits were worse than others. Uh, Ragged Dick, his most famous character, smoked uh, cigarettes um, and went to um, sort of lowbrow entertainments when we first meet him. Um, but it was important for um, young boys and young girls um, to emulate um, the genteel classes. Uh, especially in culture, habits, entertainments, things like that, uh, as a way of not um, uh, not debasing your your character, and, and um, you were supposed to emulate um, uh, your betters um, as a way to um, uh, gain notice and respectability. I'd like to uh, hook on to what you said about in the factory. On the one hand, uh, there was indeed a bias, not just among Alger, but among many uh, uh, literate people or literature people, 
about life in the factory, but there were a lot of efforts at cultural uplift of people who uh, had to work in the factory or work in mining or just in general in industry, uh, especially uh, unions and workers' libraries and even um, people who, lots of people who were civic-minded who owned these companies often spent of their own money to help uh, uplift those workers. Did Alger just take absolutely no notice of that or did he think that that's just uh, too little too late? That's a great question, Avi. Um, Remember that Alger's formula was basically set uh, in the 1860s and 1870s. Now, 1877 was a year of bloody uh, union battles in the United States. The Knights of Labor um, were active and there were other unionization efforts. Um, But Alger um, doesn't seem to uh, pay much attention either to collective efforts or institutional efforts. For example, um, Andrew Carnegie wrote his famous essay, uh, The Gospel of Wealth, in 1889, uh, in which um, published in the North American Review, in which Carnegie talked about um, why a stewardship of one's uh, wealth, uh, that a charity properly placed uh, and sort of superintended by the giver during his lifetime with the libraries and, and so on was better than um, passing it on to one's heirs because that would tend to corrupt them. Um, but that was in 1889. Um, so um, Alger felt that the, the formula required um, being noticed by one's employer and recognized for one's, you know, efforts beyond the ordinary and sort of initiative and um, good judgment. And a factory was not likely to be the place, he felt, where those um, skills were going to, those, those traits were as likely to be recognized and that someone would be able to rise through the ranks. When you notice when Alger does have a few novels with factories, um, they are they tend to be very old-fashioned. Um, you have a boot and shoe manufacturer at, at one place, but the character, um, Bert Barton, in, in $500, is a shoe pegger who's thrown out of work by the introduction of a machine. Um, my favorite case is in the a novel Ben Bruce, where... The boy in New England needs a job. He's got a very nice um, factory owner who's a friend of the family's, not an evil guy. Um, and the character Ben is um, negotiating with the uh, factory owner uh, about going into his factory when, as they're standing there, the uh, dam supplying the factory, so maybe it was a mill, uh, is blown up by disgruntled workers. And this short-term misfortune, in the sense that Ben doesn't get to go into the factory, is a long-term boon, and I think says a lot about uh, Alger's fear about what factories had the capacity to corrupt uh, the young um, and not edify them. Um, 
so there are only two or three novels that I can think of uh, that involve the boy working in a factory for any period of time. Uh, and they were usually factory types of factories that by the eve of the Civil War were um, uh, already uh, outmoded, were becoming outmoded. Okay, so a good boy or girl doesn't belong in a factory. According to Horatio Alger and his stories uh, and their good endings, where do they belong? Well, um, many of the here, contrary to the to what many people think, um, the Alger boy rarely experiences a trajectory from rags to riches. Um, they experience a trajectory from farm boy or farm hand or a street boy in New York uh, to um, middle-class respectability uh, and a uh, salaried position, um, perhaps uh, owning a small um, dry goods store or counting house or something like that. Uh, Again, um, kinds of jobs that are, are, are occupations that were um, starting to fade um, in importance in the industrial landscape. Um, uh, young girls uh, don't belong in the workplace at all. Um, I mean, that is seen as far too dangerous. Um, in the couple of stories Alger does write, um, where a young woman is a seamstress or something like that, or just a, a young kid, a, a tattered Tom is actually a girl who's sweeping the streets. And by the time they hit adolescence, uh, they need to be adopted by somebody, uh, taken under wing and and gotten out of the streets. Uh, you may know that in the even in the 1880s or 1890s, um, women, genteel women, um, were generally not walking in the streets by themselves. Um, and uh, so that was a very dangerous, uh, adolescence was a very dangerous time for all, but especially for young women. And as I said, there are only two, or I could, I, there are two major ones who figure in his stories, but uh, most females are, 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 have other kinds of roles and, and fall into traditional domestic roles. Okay. Um... You mentioned in the book that Alger took pride in possibly ending a uh, morally problematic uh, system of immigration of uh, Italians to the United States that involved something like semi-slavery. Although, as you said, it's not entirely clear how much uh, uh, his efforts mattered. How much did uh, Alger nevertheless try and work through the law or government to try and... uh, uh, help uh, people like those in his stories? Uh, or did he restrict himself almost exclusively to the world of civic volunteering? Yeah, government really doesn't play much of a role in Alger's um, story. When he talks about um, reforming, uh, reform and uh, reaching out to help people, he's usually thinking about the philanthropist, if not a philanthropist, an individual businessman, because it requires understanding somebody's character, and it's usually one-on-one. 
kind of assistance. So the the government's presence is usually in the form of uh, policemen uh, who um, may get involved in trying to help uh, with a street altercation or a robbery or something like that. Um, and uh, so there's very little government in here. Uh, I think that probably helps explain why um, many Alger uh, fans uh, are are conservatives. Um, not all, but but many are, because it really minimizes the role of the state in correcting, say, um, market distortions. Um, Alger wanted the market to work right, and to work right, it had to recognize virtue and character. Um, and that always required some kind of intervention uh, because Alger at least subconsciously recognized that um, the market wasn't allocating rewards on the basis of, of virtue or merit uh, uh, necessarily. Okay. So having said all that in this uh complicated, uh, almost very transitional uh, perspective on virtue and, and deserving and reward. Uh, brings us to the question, how is it that today, and I don't think it started today, and I'm sure you'll tell us more, how is it that uh, today, when someone mentions Horatio Alger, they think someone much more like Dale Carnegie than the actual, well, Horatio Alger? Well, um, years ago, Many years ago, my mother paid me to read uh, Dale Carnegie, uh, How to Win Friends and, and Influence People. And um, I think that uh, Carnegie focuses on much more on interpersonal interactions in a kind of pop psychology way. Um, how to motivate others, how to change others, how to change relationships, likability, you know, genuine um, uh, interest in other people as opposed to sort of pro forma, uh, uh, you know, social, you know, conventions of niceness. Um, uh, so that uh, is, a, 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 you know, assuming a workplace with sustained interactions and, uh, you know, fellow fellow co-workers and so on. Um, I suppose Alger could have endorsed uh, certain elements of Carnegie. Um, I always have viewed that as slightly, uh, as, as slightly a story about manipulation. And Alger was not telling his boys to try to manipulate anybody. Um, uh, it was their genuine uh, character and manliness and uprightness and so on that was going to get them ahead and might even earn them uh, opportunities to go out away from the workplace. In fact, instead of working every day at the workplace, they might be sent out on a mission that required trust uh, and um, discretion and smarts, uh, resourcefulness, um, things, that, things that weren't just your everyday uh, workplace interaction. Um, but I think you're also asking me, uh, uh, you know, I, I, I do think uh, 
that um, Alger certainly was never a story about uh, just uh, looking to monetary rewards. Um, people were rewarded with maybe, you know, the hero might get a gold watch at the end, which he'd wave in the face of some rich kid who's now gotten his comeuppance. Um, but uh, I don't think Dale Carnegie was about just economic rewards either. Um, so uh, uh, the Alger story, while it, it's in its popular incarnation, is thought of very materialistically. Um, Alger was trying as well to remind uh, uh, young people that community and community building and giving other people a helping hand, um, uh, even strangers, uh, if they seem to merit it, uh, was really important. Okay. Uh, so if I might press a bit then, why was it that the popular image of Alger is so materialistic when, as you said, he and his stories, and very repeatedly so, was very much not just that? Um, actually, this may have an easier answer than some of your other questions. Um, in the 1890s, Alger's last decade on Earth, um, his sales were flagging. I mean, his sales flagged earlier. And he started introducing adventure where the, you know, boys are going out west and confronting Native Americans and all sorts of other people, including Chinese. Um, so there's more um, action adventure. But in the 1890s, um, the era of the robber barons, um, you start seeing a few of his stories are more... Um, you know, acquisition of, of great wealth. Um, although it may sometimes be that the boy came into an inheritance um, and, and that that's the way the wealth is acquired. Um, so those stories are, are remembered and some of those were the ones that were reprinted. Um, after he died, uh, he had ideas. I don't know in what stage, we, we don't... I don't think we know um, in what stage of completion some of these things were, but he had ideas for 11 more novels that were put out under his name in the period from 1899 to about 1911 by Edward Stratemeyer, who was an author in his own right, but also a publisher. And uh, they came out in Alger's name, and those tended also to feature some of the more um, remarkable rises. Uh, and then those reprints in the following decade uh, often picked up the more sensational uh, rise stories. Uh, so I think that helped uh, convey that, um, uh, that sense of Alger as a rags to riches um, author. Speaking of things that changed uh, Alger's image, uh, this is unfortunately unavoidable. Um, we now know that uh, during his time as his brief time as a minister, as you mentioned, uh, he was accused of uh, uh, of abusing uh, the boys under his charge, specifically saying doing unnatural things, and he specifically did not 
denied doing that. Uh, and we also know that he uh, befriended uh, a lot of uh, younger children uh, later on in the city of New York. Uh, and it raises a very fraught question of, I'm not a very big fan of like canceling anybody because they had views we no longer hold. But in this particular case, they seem to be linked. How can we look at or study someone who wrote, on the one hand, wrote very important uh, works on virtue and morality, on the other hand, uh, so grievously betrayed the trust uh, and abused his authority uh, in such a way? How can we do that? Well, Avi, this is, this is a tough question uh, that I you know, also face in the last few years as a, as a academic, because, um, there are all sorts of artists, authors, etc., uh, scholars who have done some unsavory things, uh, who, uh, not only have done unsavory things, but who, um, create un, unattractive stereotypes. Uh, and Alger did that too. Um, in other words, uh, Alger's um, ethnic characters, uh, the Irish, the Chinese, African-American, are all pretty simplistic stereotypes, sort of cringeworthy. Um, he did have a couple um, characters that I, Irish, and you mentioned the Italian, who um, end up getting assimilated and, and become like uh, uh, New England wasps, white Anglo-Saxon Protestants, but for maybe their skin tone. Um, but uh, I don't, you know, I, I really, I, I think that the story um the stories stand on their own. The kind of character that Alger was always drawing probably reflected his own sexual preferences. Uh, the stout, manly, um, you know, boy. Uh, he will sometimes describe the nose, the hair, etc. I mean, there's a common type, and they're always, you know, they have alliterative names and they're clearly most of them wasps. Um, but as far as we know, um, when Alger was basically left Brewster Mass uh, in darkness, he, he fled uh, after the charges were um, raised by the Brewster Select Committee, um, headed by, I, I guess, headed by Solomon Freeman, but Solomon Freeman was a major figure there. Um, Alger's father, who was a um, uh, minister, as I told you, uh, wrote to the Unitarian um, authorities in Boston and, uh, you know, trying to paper things over and said that his son would never seek another position in the ministry again. Um, and Solomon Freeman was just appalled that um, Alger was trying to sell his uh, stories for boys, these morality tales, to um, uh, respectable journals like Student and Schoolmate, um, a very popular uh, journal at the time. And um, 
the journal uh, editor wrote back and 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 also the unit he reached out to the Unitarians and he said we have no control over the well the Unitarians said we have no control over the press and Solomon uh, I mean and the uh, editor of Student and Schoolmate said we're publishing them anyhow I mean they just went ahead and published them because they saw nothing inherent in the stories that was problematic um, so you know we've got you know this is a problem. It is a problem, but it's a problem hardly exclusive to Alger. Um, we got to think about we think about people like Alfred Hitchcock, who you know was revealed in recent years, you know, was um, demanding sex of many of his young female stars. Um, we've got Roman Pulaski, um, who you know has a very awful uh, past, but who produced some wonderful movies. Uh, now we've got Kevin Spacey who can you know, can't find work. Um, um, much more recently, um, may have coerced, probably did coerce uh, sexual relations with some uh, young men, um, but certainly um, had been closeted, or at least to the general public, they didn't know that he was. Um, we've got our, you know rock music people who are misogynists and and have done all sorts of terrible things. I grapple with this, um, but I grapple with it equally for all those artists that I've mentioned, uh, as I do with Horatio Alger. Um, because I think the story uh, is is inspirational, um, you know, and encouraging that um, economic hardships need not um, be one's destiny. Um, and, um, I think they served an important role, um, during the time he was writing and for several generations afterwards. Um, I don't know that too many people believe that story today, but that's very different from saying, you know, Alger was a, a bad person. He, he probably, by the way, um, as best I can tell, um, became sexually inactive, even though we know he had newsboys and, and some of his young boys on which he modeled his characters playing in his rooms. Um, uh, but he told William James at some point about his late great affliction, and we think that's what he was talking about. So, um, um, you know, he may have had a, a sad uh, a, a later life, but obviously his um, sexual preferences were, were not to be indulged. I think that's a pretty good uh, summary and a good example of how we, uh, we struggle with these questions today. Uh, Professor Nakanoff, you have given us a very wonderful summary, very interesting uh, description of a an author who is often misunderstood, uh, and I thank you for coming on. Well, you're very welcome, Avi, and thank you for um, reading the book and for um, such um, interesting and challenging and, and provocative um, questions about it. I, I appreciate uh, the opportunity to talk to you and to your audience. Mm -hmm.